In our session last week, we had a very interesting turning of the tone. And we talked about the fact that here we have this chapter after chapter, incredible revelation of who Jesus Christ is as our great high priest. How far he has gone to completely fulfill the covenant. And this being written to Hebrew Christians that during a time of both Jewish persecution against them and Roman per- the beginnings of Roman persecution against them are beginning to walk away from their faith. They're rejecting the assembly. They are going back to their sinful ways in order that they not have to endure the suffering that Christians were going through at that time. And so the turning of the tide, so to speak, in chapters 10, actually in chapter 10, is that the writer of Hebrews calls them back to the true confession of their faith. For if you don't, Because there is a time to bring truth and reality before those who have left the faith, left all the benefits of the kingdom of God, and returned to sinful ways that are destructive to their souls. That just like a shepherd sometimes has to get just a little bit rough in discipline with a sheep to save its life, we see the writer do this in chapter uh, 10. And so he says, hold fast to the confession of your faith, encouraging and exhorting one another, not rejecting the Eucharistic assembly, not because church, not because the Eucharistic assembly is something we need to check off on our schedule simply because the church tells us you are to do this on Sundays. That's not a reason. That's never reason enough. To convince someone to commit their life to be present. He says, because there in that assembly, Satan is cast down. And the kingdom of God there is made manifest for us all to experience. And he teaches them that what happens to those who reject the faith that they have been given. Because he says there's only been, of all the sacrifices leading up to Jesus Christ, there is one final sacrifice. And if you reject that final sacrifice, there are no more for you, you see. And he presents that truth. And then very pastorally, he comes back with those words that are like a salve. Remember who you were, Hebrew Christians, in your faith. How you had compassion on me in my chains. How you loved Christ and one another. Yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. He's calling them back to their true selves. The true self that by their baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were being remade into the completeness of the human person as God had designed from the beginning. He's calling them back to that. He says, we're not those who draw back unto perdition. The word perdition is a very strong word. Perdition means that which leads to the destruction of the soul and the loss of eternal life. And the only way that happens is remove yourself from the vine. To deny Christ and go your own way. You are not those, he says, 
but rather you are those who believe to the saving of the soul. And when he says, but those who believe to the saving of the soul, I actually hate that word believe. Uh, It really does work, but it's really less accurate than the real one. Because the word believe that's there at the very end of Hebrews in chapter 10 is in the same word family that we get faith from. It's for those of you that have faith, that are in the faith to the saving of the soul. Which you might imagine... If you have looked ahead at all in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 is the complete, one of the most complete chapters on what subject? Faith. It's the same word, carryover. And that's where we're going because remember, Hebrews and any epistle and any gospel that's written uh, indeed is not written in verses and chapters. It's a letter. Okay? And so it's a continuation of thought. And so the writer says, but of those who believe, who have faith to the saving of the soul, and now he's going to give us an entire chapter to say, and here's what faith is. Here's what faith is. So who has Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3? Please, nice and loud for us. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understood that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which were which are visible. All right. We have the definition starting off this whole great chapter in faith, the very definition of faith, and it is absolutely so critical that we as Christians understand what is being taught here and what truly is the faith of a Christian in the life of Christ and in the life of the Trinity. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Two key words, substance and evidence of what is not seen, make up our definition for faith. Let me ask you a question. When you think, a little word association, when you hear the word substance, what, how, what substance mean? Something Pull. solid. Something touch. solid. Something you can touch. Pull. Yeah. Something you can hold. Matter. Matter. It's a good word, too. Right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. To understand faith as defined by the writer of Hebrews, which we understand is the teachings of St. Paul that were passed on, the best way we can start by defining this is by looking at Jesus Christ Himself. Because in Himself is the definition of faith. And I'll show this to you. And so first we take the word substance. And all of you have given some very good descriptions. None of those are wrong at all. In fact, they're they're, they're right on. Think of it this way. Something that has substance is is that which any of our senses can perceive. Okay, tangible would be a good word, right? Something we can touch, see, smell, hear, experience, feel, right? That is something that has substance. So let me ask you this. 
And by the way, the word substance is a huge, the, the Greek word that's used there is a huge theological word that's used in so many means by which we express the reality of who God is. Substance, something that we can perceive, feel, experience with our senses in some very real way. Then here's the question, when God became incarnate in Jesus Christ, was Jesus Christ not substance? Everyone could see Jesus. Those who were around him could feel him. The woman with the issue of bleeding touched the hem of the garment. Jesus Christ laid hands upon people. Jesus Christ had spit that he spit into the ground, made mud, touched their eyes with it, and the blind could see. They could hear his voice. Summed up, they had a real and tangible experience with Jesus. Faith is the substance, the very real experience with God. Through Jesus Christ. And then the second word, evidence. But more importantly of what? Evidence of things not seen. See, this is where a lot of people so misdefine faith. They think because Jesus Christ lived, died, was resurrected and ascended, that He is no longer as tangibly in the flesh here with us, they think that now somehow the definition of faith has changed. It's, I have to believe in something I can't experience. You see, He's not here with us. Do you see that? That definition of faith, that somehow God grants a faith to get beyond what we can't see, and leaving faith limited to that, is extremely limiting to what it is. Because of the incarnation, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that joined us in unity to God Himself through Jesus Christ. The evidence of things not seen. Was Jesus, again, look to Jesus in order for the faith definition. Jesus was substance. Was He not a revelation to man of what was prior invisible? Who did He reveal to the whole world? God. God, His Father. That which was previously invisible was made visible in our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, He was the evidence of that which was previously unseen. Do you see that? And so people saw this. In fact... The Apostle John writes in his Gospel in John in chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, do you not have faith that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So our Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation, He is the definition of faith in person. He is substance to be experienced by us, by our senses. 
even though he's not enfleshed in front of us. We experience him. We are given the experience of him by the Holy Spirit. We're drawn to him through him to the Father by the Holy Spirit. And he is the evidence for us of that which we could never have seen without him. Okay? In fact, Hebrews 12, and we're going to get to this next week. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 tells us this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of what? Faith. And our faith. Our faith begins with the experience of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It begins with our baptism, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it continues throughout our life. He is the author. He begins it. He writes it. And only in Him does He finish that faith. What's our job? With Back to the vine, the branches remain in Him. He begins... He continues, and our faith is finished by His work. By His work alone. Faith is not something, my friends. You hear language used sometimes. I know I did very much in many different past situations that I found myself and even used it myself. Where we feel like at times, if I only had enough faith, so let me try to conjure up something in me. If I can only, if I, if I can only conjure up just enough strength, then this would or would not have happened. That's not faith. Because that makes faith something intangible. Something I'm making up within myself. Do you see the difference? The writer is saying faith of a Christian is entirely, it's tangible because it meets the experience of God and man coming together and their faith is born. And by the continued experience of God and man, faith grows to maturity and it is finished by the express union and fellowship of God with what he created and with what he created with his creator. You see that? But isn't that kind of the same thing? Tell me what you mean. Same so, thing as what? If you say, uh, don't try to conjure up more faith mm-hmm. in you, when you try to connect yourself to God, that's, ah. in my experience, that's it. Right. I perceive that the same way. Okay. And you would be right in the way that you just expressed that, because your path to faith is pursuing God. Right? Not some belief apart, hoping to believe full, more fully in and of yourself. You're pursuing God because you know that by the experience of God, Him joining you, that's where our faith grows. Does that make sense? So you're saying it absolutely right, Yanetta. But there are a lot of people out there, maybe some of us in here, that think sometimes... We're weak in our faith, and so it really it's up to us to conjure something up of belief. If I can only believe strong enough. We can't believe strong enough. 
Because true faith only comes from experience. You see? And we're going to get to that. Yes? I think, Father, I've heard many people say this, you know, that I, they say to me, well, I had a problem and I turned it over to God, and then the next morning I decided to take it back. So their faith is weak. So they're admitting that they're, they're trying to rely on themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's wrong. Self-reliance. Hear this. Self-reliance is one of the greatest deceptions of Satan in the Christian life. Because all God calls us to do, in fact, the entire gospel is come to me, I am your life. Come to me, I am your everything. And it, I love it. I'll go back to St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless, always at rest. Always, always not at rest, excuse me. Restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. Yes? I think um, what Yonetta was saying, what you're saying also, sometimes people have faith, Yes. but their faith is in a God they've kind of made up. Like it's not the real, true nature of God that they're putting their faith in. Mm. It's something that that's complementary to what they think God should be like, or maybe it's based on their parental... You know, you know, growing up, or it could be lots of things. I don't want to go too far, but self-definitions of God, which really gets back to the ultimate goal of what humanism is. One of the greatest things that wars against Christianity is humanism. Humanism, remember this: humanism says the everything comes down to the individual. As an individual, I decide what truth is. I decide what truth about God is. I, 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 right? Whereas Christianity says, he says, out of many you've been made one loaf. Come out of the I, come into the whole. I reveal. I give you experience of myself. I show you who I am and how you should walk that your heart goes to peace and the disorders become ordered. Right? So I don't want to go too much further with that. But the point being made is this, and this is where we have the litany of faith coming up. Because he's defining faith for us. And what he's basically saying is there is no faith but by the experience of God. And it is an experience with our faculties, with our senses. Even if he's not enfleshed before us in his flesh, he sure enfleshes himself in so many ways for our experience. We can see these all... Come on, the Eucharist. He makes it His flesh and blood. And where do we receive it? Into ourselves. It doesn't get more sensory to be experienced than that. Right? Okay. So having defined that, that faith is born, grows, and is finished by the experience of God in the life of any human being. So now we come into Hebrews and chapter 11 where we go through the litany of faith. Now this litany of faith, and I do not have time to go through every testimony of who God proclaimed to be great in faith. But they are testimonies to us. And they're testimonies that are being used to back up this very definition of faith being by the experience of God. Okay, What I am going to do is pull a number of them for you. And we'll explore them. Probably some of the ones we're more knowledgeable of 
to help us out because, you know, there are a lot of names. If you look at that chapter, and please do, and explore them. Okay, so let's start with this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Here we have the patriarch of the faith, Abraham. He is credited for having faith to leave Ur. This is the place he lived. This is the place he lived all his life. This is the place where all of his family and friends and everyone was. Everything familiar was in Ur. Okay? He is called to go from there, follow God to the place that he would bring him into. But how could Abraham just drop everything and do such a thing? Did he need to conjure up some faith? If I can only believe enough, I can go and do what God has said. That's not what happens. It would be the experience of God. I want to say this very plainly. In Genesis chapter 12, it says this. And I'm not even going to say the full sentence. Now the Lord said to Abraham. I don't have to tell you what he said. He did tell him to pack up and leave and so on and gave him instructions. The Lord said. What does that tell you? What just happened? He spoke to him. What does that tell you about Abraham? He heard. What does that tell us all? He experienced God. God granted him. Abraham didn't have the faith before, you see, as far as that's concerned. God granted him the experience of himself. Enough for Abraham to follow that voice, that word that direction. Abraham experienced it. Now, that was the birth, let's call it, of Abraham's journey of faith with God as he would leave Ur. How would Abraham's faith grow throughout his life? Can anybody tell me some of the things that God granted his experience of himself to Abraham so that his faith could grow even over time? What are some of the experiences of Abraham? Yes? He tested it. Which mm-hmm. made his faith stronger that testing. Give me an example of a testing. Uh, son of Take your only son, go up to the mountain, and sacrifice him to me. Right, and Abraham, when he did that, he proved to God his faith, and so he didn't have to do it. Yep. He yep. fathered a child in the age. Fathered a child in extremely old age by the promise of God. God fulfilling His promise to him. Very good. And there are so many others. I'm going to have to move on because we have a number of folks to cover today. But do you get the fact that God granted a tangible experience with Himself? That, that is what the beginning of faith, continued experience throughout the life of Abraham growth in faith, and now he's considered because he continued to follow a man of great faith as a testimony to what faith is and where it comes from to us. Secondly, how about Joseph? Joseph is mentioned in the lineage of of faith, the litany of faith. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, Joseph is credited for his faith. 
Do you remember where his faith began? Anyone? Joseph. Think of his childhood that we have at the very beginning of those passages. If you remember anything about the life of Joseph. He was the only son of... Mm-hmm. Of... Sarah? No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Oh, his mom. Okay, she had a hard time having children. Isn't that right? Not, I don't know if it's Joseph. Wait a minute. Now you got me confused. <laughs> yes, Rebecca... <clears throat> But the other brothers, there are many other brothers. But in his childhood, what did God grant Joseph? Dreams. Dreams. And a very profound one. Where he saw himself exalted above his brothers. Right? You remember that? Now, God granted him faith, but evidently didn't grant him wisdom because he went and told all his brothers. But no, no, that's all part of it. It's all part of God's purpose in this, but, but God granted him that faith. But what would happen to him because of that? His brothers would throw him in a well. They would sell him off in slavery to Egypt. But what are some things the continued experience of God that Joseph would have as a slave and a servant in Egypt? What would happen? Anybody remember? Yes. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Okay. Yeah, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams because in a very desperate time, remember, Joseph served the house of Potiphar, right? And when Potiphar's wife charged Joseph of attempted rape against her, he was thrown in prison. While in prison, we don't want to go through the whole story again. I'm sorry, I don't have time. But God gives visions to him that put him in a position of interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh that would then save Egypt from a very prolonged famine by those types of experiences. And again, with Joseph, there are many others along the way. But what was his faith based on? The gift of God. The revelation of himself to Joseph. Okay? That experience. The last one that I'm going to mention is this. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Moses credited for his great faith. But do you remember where that faith began? After he had, he grew up in Egypt, right? He left Egypt. What happened to him that granted him the faith that he would need for that journey with God and all his good purposes in him? God spoke to him. Where? Where? The burning bush experience, right? That's pretty tangible. The burning bush, the glory of God, the voice of God speaking to him, revealing himself to him. How do we know he revealed himself to him? He says, tell me your name. Take off your shoes. Tell me, Moses says, tell me your name. You're sending me to go do this. Who shall I say sent me? And he reveals himself as the I am. One of the greatest revelations of who God is. Right to Moses. So that began that. The experience Moses had with God began that. Now we could go for hours talking about all the experiences that Moses had with God. As did his people. God's people. But what were some of those experiences that you remember about Moses? 
through their journey out of Egypt, in Egypt and out of Egypt. Brought water out of a rock. Brought water out of a rock with his staff because God said do it. How'd they get out of Egypt? What happened? The Red Sea. Through the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and it collapsing on the enemies when they had crossed to wipe away their enemy, prefiguring baptism for us. What about all the different plagues that even got them to the Red Sea? How about every day being led by fire at night and being covered by a cloud by day so that they could live and survive the wilderness journey? Manna every morning, quail every evening, and on. And on. And on. Are you starting to see the pattern of faith? Faith comes by God. In fact, faith is proclaimed in the New Testament as a gift from God. We have to see that. Not of ourselves. It is a gift from God. When we accept those revelations, those experiences, and we continue to walk in God... Our faith grows to maturity as we're made more and more like Him. So, who has Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Thank you. So get this. You've got to hear what the writer is proclaiming, the truth that the writer is proclaiming here. We just defined faith as substance, something tangible, evidence of that which is unseen. It is the experience of man with God, given by God. Okay? And we've seen that fleshed out in the lives of just three of the many in the list of the litany of faith. And what does the writer turn to and say about all these in the litany of great faith? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Fascinating statement. Because when I look at those men and women, as you'll find in that litany of great faith, when I look at them and the experience that God gave them of Himself, it's profound. And yet we're told that they've died not having received the fullness, not having received the promises. They still saw them and they knew they were going to come because of their faith in God. But they had not received the promises. Who are the recipients of those promises? Point to yourselves. Everyone from the Incarnation and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, joining us as one with the Trinity, are the recipients. We received so much more fully what they had in part. 
Now let that boggle your mind because you've heard of the great testimony of the things that they experienced. And yet we're told we are the ones that have received the promises. I'm going to read the final part of this chapter. Listen, he continues in this vein. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me not to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, other were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now listen. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, still did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That, that's heavy. All of those people of great faith in the Old Covenant. Here's what I want you to see. The church says this statement very clearly. All of history in the confines of time, all of history converges to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. All of history, from the garden to the fall to all of the old covenant and God's having a people unto Himself, all that He did for them, all that He showed Him about Himself by experience, all of it converges in time to the incarnation. The conception, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, and then the blessed outpouring of His Holy Spirit. Because Christ was the one chosen by God to redeem all things in Himself, to make all things new again. See, this is what the Old Covenant did not have. And they had in part, they had the promise of Christ coming. They had the promise of all that He would do by summing up, as we've said before, and the church uses that language, by summing up our humanity and joining it to divinity and bringing us back to a garden state. A place where in every moment is the opportunity to commune with the Holy Trinity. That was the design of the garden. Remember that. I'll never stop saying it and keeping it before you. God created the entire universe, ordered every molecule in such a way. And the very last thing He did, the crown of creation was man. And He placed man there. And He did all of that because He is love. And He shares Himself. That was the whole thing. I did all of this 
to share myself with Adam, with Eve. And they fell. Christ has summed it all up in Himself, fulfilled all of those promises spoken through the Old Covenant and said, Now you, church, beloved children of Mine, you have the better. My friends, through our life of prayer, and remember what St. Paul says, he doesn't limit prayer to the important hours of prayer, vespers and matins, and the prayers we do in the Blessed Eucharistic Assembly. He says, pray without ceasing. Why? Paul's not calling us just to an action. He's calling us to the blessed fellowship of the promise. And that through the blessed fellowship comes the experience of God in Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in us, so that our faith is born, so that our faith grows and comes to maturity because of the gift that He is and that He is given to us. Hmm? Let's stand.